0: This is Joshua Haddon with the One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I am joined as always, by my good friend, my business partner, the
1: good, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Hi, Jason. Oh, thank you. Yeah. thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank to, you. To really buy into what would be the next area of, of uh, <sighs> what am I trying to say, the next area to tear Jason down, according to... And by using.
0: Wow. To tear you <laughs> wait, to tear you down? You expected me to tear you down? To tear,
1: to tear me down only to build me up again.
2: Why do you build me up, build me up, but I don't pay you right. just to let me, down. And mess me around and
1: While you were giving your introduction, I was thinking to myself, Oh man, I've gone through another set of earbuds. I can only hear Joshua in my right ear. This really sucks. This would be the second pair of earbuds I've lost to losing the left ear. And then I realized, if you can see me on the video. I can, yeah. On your phone, by which we're communicating, I don't actually have an earbud in my left ear. No, it's just tucked away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on one hand, the good news is, um, A, the earbuds aren't broken. Good. B, mm-hmm. I'm not having a stroke.
0: That's so that's very good. that's very positive. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm very happy about that news.
1: Uh, and C, I can actually hear my own voice while having your voice fed into my right ear. So, all in all, this feels like a bit of a win.
0: Uh, so we, I guess we're done.
1: Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll chuck up an interview and get out of here. <laughs> 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 Nothing else to talk about. Uh, So, Jason, you
0: have been, you've been away in Scotland while I've been here uh, stateside, you know, keeping the fort down. Sitting on your hands, yep. yep, Sitting on my hands, uh, sitting on babies.
1: (laughs) You did have a a side babysitting job I did here. (laughs) Uh,
0: But you were out in Scotland with Jess Lomas, who is Mm -hmm. the subject of our previous episode. Indeed. Uh, For those who who haven't listened, she's our European sales manager, brand new to the company, uh, launching Single Cast Nation in the UK. Tell me about that amazingness, please.
1: Yeah, it was it was as terrific as I'd hoped it would be. I suggested in the last episode that being a, a chap from Ayrshire mm-hmm. who cut his teeth in Glasgow uh, before heading off to the Northeast to, to go to university in Aberdeen, uh, that it would be quite special to return home, essentially. Mm-hmm. Ayer is about 30 minutes southwest of Glasgow. And so it would be quite special to return home and, and launch my brand, which mm-hmm. obviously I, I've built with you in the United States. And, and it was remarkable. We poured at Glasgow's Whiskey Festival on the Saturday and 2,000 people... Came through their doors. I'm sorry, how many? 2,000 people, attendees, Ah. came through their doors. Wow. Across two four hour sessions. So we poured from 12 till 4, Mm -hmm. took a one hour break where the organizers of Glasgow's Whiskey Festival had put on massages and dinner. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, there was a longer line for the for the masseuses than uh, than we actually had masseurs. So um, so unfortunately, I, I didn't get the massage, but many other people did, and that's that's good for them. Okay. And uh, and then we went back down, and we poured from five till nine for a, a completely different session.
0: And were there any repeat attendees from the
1: first session? No, if you'd seen them stagger out at the end of the first session, they were not getting back in the door for the second.
0: Oh, is uh, this? Yeah, go on, go,
1: go on you, you finish. No, you, you well, is, is, is it a bit of a piss up? I'd, I didn't think so. I'd, I'd heard more stories about the people of Glasgow will hit this harder than, than most of the people you see. Um, I was very fortunate. I didn't see anybody stumbling around. Mm. Um, I, I obviously had some folk at my table uh, who were who were getting there. I would mm. definitely say that. But I'd certainly... Nobody seemed overly drunk, especially for Glasgow on a Saturday afternoon. Come on. It yeah. Was, it was, yeah. It was pretty yeah. tight. Yeah,
2: um,
1: but-, but it was really fun people coming up and saying, oh, Single Cast Nation, either... I've seen this at the Bon Accord um, or Paul McDonough who is the owner of the Bon Accord has poured this for me oh, nice. uh, at the Bon Accord and then uh, a few people said big fan of the podcast nice. really happy to see you uh, now launching into UK Europe and, and parts further afield so, so that was really positive. And then another positive aspect is something you and I have talked about in, you know way back when we were mothballing the Jubilee. Mm. There was a, a retailer on site. And so Good Spirits Company, uh, yeah. who, are, who are Bath Street right there in Glasgow, mm-hmm. had their own counter space. And, and quite fortuitously, we were in the same suite as them. The, the festival itself was broken across two suites. Okay. And really, if you walked into one or the other, you were essentially in a whiskey festival unto itself. Oh, in wow. Each, these suites were that size. Wow. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, you, you could, you know, honestly, you could have come to the first session and spent it all in suite A. You could have then come back for the second session and spent it all in suite B. Uh, oh, gotcha. And so long as you had a, a, a cast iron liver, you <laughs> you could have done that over eight hours. Okay, but but as it stood, no people were moving between both suites on the day. And as I say, Good Spirits Company was was in our suite, so it was it was really great to have. You know, people <laughs> I had one guy at my table say, "Is it wrong to leave a whiskey festival with a bottle of rum?" and i said not if its our rum and uh, and he then went and bought a bottle of our 16 year old angostura single cask Ugh, the sherry matured exactly exactly yeah. 16 years in a sherry hogshead one of 309 bottles at a natural cask strength of 55% alcohol let me tell you something else interesting after i take a wee sip of tea to wet my whistle
0: all right i'm also enjoying a tea on this fine Uh, Morning.
1: Now, what was I going to tell you? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I saw, I witnessed with my own two eyes, Mm -hmm. a generational shift at Glasgow's Whiskey Festival. Okay. Because on our table, we had two funky monkeys. This is what I was calling them, two funky monkeys. A 13-year-old Craig and a 12-year-old Kalila. Right mm. So e- even in Scotland Even in Glasgow I had a lot of people Come up and say I don't like peat What, what have you got That's not peaty And I, okay. I really I really didn't think I, th- I would see that much in, in Glasgow But I did And so those were My two funky monkeys Then on the other end Of the table We had two Ex-bourbon uh, Matured Highlanders A okay. tea and Innoc And a tomatin mm-hmm. And the tea Is the one that we Poured at Maltstock And we talked about On a previous episode And then right in the middle of the table, we had a single cask of blended malt from Edrington at nine years old, all nine years in first fill sherry butt. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll circle back to that in just a second. And then beside the blended malt, we had the 16-year-old Angostura single cask. Yeah. And so I would have a lot of the, the old timers, a lot of the old boys would come by the table and they would say, Tell me about your whiskeys, not interested in your rum. Okay, cool. Here, let me talk uh-huh. about my whiskeys. Okay. Virtually every young person, male and female, who came by our table was interested in the rum. And they'd either discover it themselves, they'd seen it in the, the show booklet, they'd had friends recommend it to them, okay. they would leave and recommend it to their friends, bartenders came by, um, the rum absolutely took on a life of its own among the young and among both males and females wow. of that younger demographic. So was this like a like
0: when the young people heard the older people say, you know, don't show me the runs, I, I want to check out the whiskeys, did you hear any audible, okay, boomer, uh, comments. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I'll be honest, I only thought it. I only uh, had to go okay. through the back oh, of my he's, head. Just curious. <laughs> uh,
0: but you know what? Pe- people like what they like, and and the fact of the matter is, once you get older, a lot of people are a bit less willing to explore. So it was nice to see the the younger generation coming in and saying, Okay, I get it. It's a whiskey festival, but this is different. This is, you know, uh, different from what's on the rest of the tables. Let me give this a go.
1: Yes. That's that's cool. No, no, absolutely. I think the flavor profile, I think the fact it was interesting to them, you know, interesting maturation. It was an interesting age for a rum. It was an interesting ABV for a rum. Um, I I think that rum sat on the table and really told its own story. Um, It also helped... That Matthew, one of the co-owners at Good Spirits Company, oh yeah, he he came by for a taste of it as well, thoroughly enjoyed it. and he went about recommending it obviously to people that he knows who come by the shop, in yeah. addition to that, friends of his. and it, it was it was really remarkable how it took on a life of its own. so then to to circle back to what I what I started to say about the the blended malt. So it's, it's ruby red sitting in the middle of the table, Uh but it's got the number nine on it, which makes it the youngest thing on the table. Meanwhile, it's sitting next to the Angostura, which has got this really lovely red hue to it and has a 16 on it. So it's the oldest thing on the table, right? (laughs) And so, and so people would come by and they'd be looking, looking through the lineup and they would say, oh, a blended. No, no. And, and I would say, well, pa- pause for a second. Pause for a second there. Let me tell you about it. It's a single cask of blended malt from Edrington, which means there could be McAllen, uh, Glenrothes, Tam Deux, and Highland Park in here. And they were brought together at a young age and left to marry for nine years in that first Phil Sherry butt. And it's bottled at a natural cask strength. And thought we'd go, oh, yeah, I'll give that a try, yeah. (laughs) And um, and so then they would taste it and they would go, oh, oh, that's lovely, lovely. Mm. And then they would go, you said natural cask strength. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say, yes. And I purposely didn't tell you because I knew it would sway you more than it should. It's 65.4% alcohol. (laughs) And people would go, oh, that's a what? Oh, what? And then one guy, and this actually harkened back to a a Whiskey Jubilee up in Seattle uh, from a few years ago when I poured the, the Whiskey Jubilee Chicago um, the first one we did that was 65.1 oh yeah yeah. yeah. the light yeah. whiskey finished in the IPA cask mm-hmm. and uh, this guy in Glasgow when he finds out it's 65.4% goes that's toxic <laughs> 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 you, you shouldn't be drinking that <laughs> and i'll be honest he wasn't nearly as posh as that i just couldn't get low enough for his glasgow accent (laughs) that's toxic that's toxic
0: (laughs) that's not so bad you you do sound a bit glaswegian right there
1: (laughs) and so and so it was another one that kind of started to take on a life of its own um partly because it's first fill sherry mm. you know i tell people all the time you and i don't select casks according to to the color of the whiskey no nope. however when you get a deep ruby red one full go bananas for it and you can't help yourself <laughs> they do they do yeah and so so those those two were really the the head turners uh, the krigelike people really liked it as a funky monkey but i did end up talking about the Craigellachie that we bottled for US retail, the 10-year-old that we talk about as just a massive umami bomb, mm-hmm. and 67.3% alcohol. So, so I found myself kind of talking about that a fair bit. Uh-huh. And then the Tieninic had a bunch of boys who actually came down from Inverness. And when they saw Tieninic, just for anybody who's not overly familiar with Tieninic, the distillery is just north of Inverness. Mm-hmm. And so when a bunch of guys came down from Inverness and saw a and in Inic, they immediately wanted it poured. Oh, that's and it was great. a really, really great comment from, from all of them was, this is local to us and we have no idea how it tastes.
2: Wow. Right. So that, it, that was their it first? It all goes into
1: blending stock. Exactly. Yep. Wow. Yep. I even had an old, old guy who was down uh, with his son and he was saying, this is a brilliant, brilliant malt that nobody knows anything about because mm-hmm. it all goes into blends. Yeah. And I got to say to him, well, as an independent bottler, we think that's our remit, showing mm. different sides of known distilleries and introducing consumers to distilleries they may never have heard of. Yeah. And he, he tasted it, really liked it, tasted it a second time, really liked it, and then asked for a double pour because it was the end of the first session. So he, That's amazing. Yeah, he had four pours of the Tiananik uh, okay. all to close out his day uh, at Glasgow Whiskey Festival.
0: Okay, okay. That is very cool. That is yep. very cool. For those that are listening and, and hearing all of these names, Tianinic and, innic, and you, we didn't even met, well, talked a little bit about the tomaten, the Kalila, mm-hmm. the rum, the blended, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, these will be on sale at uh, Good Spirits Company,
1: Yep, they're already uh, there. They've been there since last Saturday.
0: Yeah, so they're available at the shop, but soon they're going to be online as well. So exactly for those who do their online shopping, um, you know, just keep an eye out on the Good Spirits Company website for the Single Cast Nation bottlings, and uh, you will be rewarded.
1: Yep. 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 Brilliant. Yeah, appreciate their support. They're the first store to carry us in the United Kingdom. They will not, of course, be the last. But I uh, really appreciate their support and yeah. enthusiasm around the brand. Before we wrap up the Glasgow Whiskey Festival experience, mm-hmm. we've talked about me. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> we've talked about the whiskey. <laughs> we've talked about the attendees and we've talked about Good Spirits Company. Uh-huh. But we haven't talked about the woman who spent eight hours on my right side. And whenever people... We're starting to focus too much on the middle-aged white guy, I would say. And this is our brand new European sales manager. Mm-hmm. This is the woman who will be representing this brand among these parts. And and I have to say it was it was really interesting. Cause obviously. You and I have been a, a two-man show for a long time, long long time, and yep. uh, and and now we've got a, a third member of that, and 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 a female, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it was really an up-close uh, view for me watching how females tend to do at whiskey festivals.
2: Hmm.
1: I I started the day away from the table, actually. Um, okay. I was off saying hello to different people and trying to do a little bit of business here and there. Yeah. Uh, and I probably walked back to the table about 30 minutes after the show started. Okay. And Jess was holding her own. she of course was. She was pouring. Yes. She was talking. Everybody who had gone to the table was giving her their undivided attention. And then I slid in behind the table beside her and I started to notice them paying attention to me i wasn't pouring whiskey i wasn't speaking <laughs> i was just simply a middle-aged white dude standing next to a, yeah. a, a young woman behind the table mm-hmm. and and it was it was interesting because me being me and me used to being behind the table you know often by myself kind of doing the show yeah i i, I couldn't help but jump into that mode and as i jumped into that mode I noticed. Oh, I've got more of their attention, and more of their attention, uh, and I and I noticed Jess just kind of standing off to the side a little bit to to give me that spotlight. Mm. And I was like, "This no, this isn't yeah. how this works." Yeah. Nope. Uh, and so I would I would purposely step back from the table. I would purposely walk away from the table. I would repeatedly give the floor back to Jess to. Yeah. The That's European good. sales manager, yeah. who is as knowledgeable about these six casks and the whiskey industry writ large as anybody we know, mm-hmm. but because she's not a middle-aged white male, the focus doesn't linger if if something else, you know, shiny comes along. So uh, it was a really interesting lesson for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, you know, hearing you talk about that, I am definitely. Not so naive to believe that people went to talk to you because your face is also on the banner behind you. It was you. funny.
1: That was funny the number of people that pointed that out to me. I was it, like, "Whoa, it is!" Yeah.
0: <laughs> when did that happen? Without a doubt. But you know, sadly, we're we're still living in a time where, uh, you know, put put a guy next to the woman, and, and people, men and women will sort of lean more towards the guy and try to get information from the guy which is a a really sad statement but it was very good to hear you say that when you weren't behind the table or when you stepped back you know they were treating her you know, like a woman should be treated as a human. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> as a human is no. exactly
1: correct. <laughs> but it was, also, it was also really good because there were times when people like Glasgow's Distillery came by only to speak to Jess. There were a number of members of, of Glasgow clubs and societies who came by only to speak to Jess. Good. Because yeah. they they knew her from her doing tastings for them, they knew her from her time with the whiskey auction. It was it was really great to see her with her cadre of people as well. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I was just some jamokin from America who nobody knew from a hole in the ground. Yeah. And and I, and, I, and I kind of enjoyed that. And of course, Jess, being you know wonderful would say oh this is Jason owner single cast nation mm-hmm. and then she would always point to you on the banner this is Joshua Jason's business partner and <laughs> um, so you you were with us in banner spirit
0: oh that's good, that's good. <laughs> yeah I, I've got to tell you it was it was kind of sad not not being there being part of the launch but uh, I knew that you two would there was no need you know three's a company. Right, <laughs> um, what? But Three, three's a crowd. F- apparently, well, no, that's after Chrissy left, oh,
1: Christ. and then that's and then American the other one TV came. Reference, of course, and it then is. it
0: became three's a crowd. But before that, it was three's company.
1: How could I not realize that was an American TV reference? Coming coming
2: I will tell that you, that
1: is new. see if you insert the actual theme here for this episode, I will be thoroughly pissed at you because you did not insert the Golden Girls theme for me when I was singing it in the last episode. Do you know why I didn't? Because you couldn't find it anywhere.
0: No, because you sang it so beautifully, I didn't want to take away. <laughs> no, I'm not buying from... that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, you, I, I think we need to pivot to what this episode is really meant to be about.
1: Right? I like how I like how you just periodically decide that our podcast needs to be on focus. Even though in almost three years of doing this, we've never, never remained on focus. No, I, n- I know, but I, I, <laughs> I... It's like when you... Oh, God, I, and I, I hear it so often. You just did it with a cigar announcement in one of the last episodes. You say... Okay, we just need to keep this quick and focused. Just quick, and and I'm with the listeners. Every time I hear you say "quick and focused," I think it's going to be long and unfocused. Are we still talking about the podcast? <laughs> I knew you couldn't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you couldn't help. Well,
0: it. you know, it, having played in bands for years and years, I was always the one to like keep people in line, keep people on task, uh, arrange the songs, like put shit together. <laughs> And I just I get into that mode, and Jason, if I didn't, you you know who knows what tangent you'd take us on.
1: <laughs> Am I in an alternate universe right now? What's happening?
0: Oh, let <laughs> me. Speaking of that, let me tell you really quickly.
1: Uh-huh. Really quickly of, of the Quick uh, and focused
0: of the store uh, that Haida and I wanted to to start years ago. And by Haida and I, I think I was pushing for it more than she was. Um, but, you know, I, I've been a comic book fan for years, as far back as I can remember. And my my wife, my wife. My wife. My wife. Um, she's a knitter, right? She's she, Well, she, she hasn't knitted in a while, but she would make. She's made me socks and scarves and hats, and she's done all sorts of stuff. And I had this idea of putting a store together that was comic books and knitting supplies and we were going to call it alternate universe oh see that
1: oh you, okay the, the yeah. dad joke is strong with
0: this one yeah so you mentioned alternate universe boom I hadn't thought of alternate <laughs> universe in a good 12 years see that come, come
1: for the dig jokes stay for the terrible puns <laughs> <laughs> Okay, can, so so yeah. Oh okay, sorry, we're not gonna pivot. Yes, carry on.
0: <laughs> can can we go back on task? I, I figured I wanted to help you out with uh some, some tangent there.
1: Honestly, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've forgotten from you know, there was a the time at Glasgow's Whiskey Festival, and then there's all the drinking that happened in Glasgow round about that. Mm-hmm. We drank the Glasgow Hilton dry of Campari, right? What were you were you drinking Negronis?
0: Or, yeah, but yeah.
1: Uh, unf- unfortunately, the story isn't nearly as grand as it first sounds. Mm. They ran out after we asked for three Negronis. We ordered five, and they were able to supply us with three. Okay, and, and then they were out at a Campari for the rest of the week. <laughs> you made it. You know, <laughs> you really made it sound as if.
0: All right, three more Negronis, three more Negronis, three more... No, you just got the three, and they were done. And the entire Campari plant we said, we have to wait until the Italian plant
1: can chip we from Italy. We did. Oh, wow. we, we drank it dry of Campari after three cocktails. Well,
0: the good news is Campari no longer crushes beetles for the red color. So you just get Red Lake 40, which gives you some good good throat cancer, so... Hope you enjoy that. <laughs> How's that for a conversational cul-de-sac? Joshua. Right, here we go. No. Joshua. No, 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 no. Yeah, go Joshua. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah, go. Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh-huh. So, so, go ahead. So, so. Just spit it out because I want to, you have a question and I want to answer the
1: question. Here we are talking about me being at Glasgow's Whiskey Festival and mm-hmm. that being really special for me. Yeah. I want to pivot Very quickly and In a very focused way Okay Back to something that was special to you That led to today's interview Mm -hmm. So you were inducted into the Keepers of the Quake Back in April of this year Mm -hmm. And I had the distinct pleasure Of sitting next to Stuart Nickerson For the duration of that dinner Stuart's also the good chap Who nominated you for your keeperdom Yes, he did. I'm
0: still pinch myself on that one.
1: So over the course of the night, Stuart and I are, are drinking away and drinking away and talking away and talking away. And, and at one point, as we've kind of briefly touched on a lot of his history, he tells me, yeah, this is my 40th anniversary of being in the whiskey industry. Gosh, that's mental. Yeah. And, and I immediately said to him, we need to interview you for the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, is, this needs to be recognized and talked about and discussed. And so, so we organized. I said, okay, I'll be, I'll be back later in the year. Let's, let's sort something out. Yeah. And so we had something actually arranged for October time. And unfortunately, one thing led to another. And, unf- and, and as I say, unfortunately, that date fell through. Mm-hmm. I said, to him, but I'm back in a few weeks. And that was into November now. And so he lives in Perth, I was in Glasgow. And so we agreed to meet at the Stirling Service Station, right? The Stirling <laughs> Services, where you can get, you know, um, what can you get, a-, a Whopper, you can get a Greg's pasty, you can get some Costa coffee, you can use the facilities. It it you can fill up your car, it really is a bare bones enterprise. Okay. And so here's here's this industry leader of four decades meeting me in a car park <laughs> to sit in my rental car to oh, wow. be interviewed about his 40 years and It was all his suggestion. He is not a man of airs and graces. He's not a man that needs to be sitting in the fanciest whiskey pub. He's not a man that needs to be wined and dined at an expensive restaurant in Edinburgh for Mm -hmm. an interview to happen. We sat down with a couple of soy cappuccinos and we chatted for an hour in the car. How real is that? That's lovely. Really.
0: (laughs) That is a lovely way. To spend an hour, um, you know, as, as you know, back in 2010 or 11, I interviewed him for the blog.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, It uh, was a great interview as well. I, I absolutely remember reading that as soon as you released it. Yeah. And speaking with
0: him was lovely. I, I remember getting a copy of what was at the time Malt Advocates, now Whiskey Advocate, where it, it it showed that he had reopened the Glen Glassa distillery, mm. and you know I remember uh, I I still subscribe to the magazine, but early days, uh, early days that 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 was that was my bible right Mall Advocate magazine. It was mm-hmm. just I ate up every single article and I yeah wonderful saying,
1: quarterly publication.
0: Yeah, this is a guy I need to interview and he was so lovely to talk to. And over the years we we kept in contact. We brought tour groups to to Glenglassa. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that was what 2010, 2011 fast forward to 2019 and and he nominated me as a keeper. And I just I love that he was at the very beginning of my whiskey journey, the start of my whiskey life, if you oh, will. for sure, yeah. And and also played one of the biggest roles in my whiskey life. To nominate me as a Keeper of the Quake was, was quite special, and I always, I, I don't know, I similar to the Keeper of the Quake episode, I find myself... Um, At a a loss for words. I I don't know how to explain how special that is. So I'll just (laughs) leave it at that and and poorly talk about how special it is.
1: (laughs) I might have given you too much of the floor there. That was a lot of words about nothing. Uh, That was too (laughs) many words. God damn it. But oh. it's special and you're you're verklempt. Let's leave it I, at that. There
0: you go, verklempt. I'll just cut out everything and just say, I was verklempt.
1: <laughs> so so without further ado then, mm-hmm. let's let's keep it focused and, and on task, which is your want. Yep. And uh and let's let's listen. Let's give the floor over to Stuart and let's hear what we covered. Uh an hour of condensing, distilling. See what I did there? Ooh. 40 years of, of industry life into a One Nation Under Whiskey episode. To begin the beginning, the I had the pleasure of sitting with you at the Keepers Banquet in April, where, where Joshua was inducted. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody left in America who doesn't know Joshua as a keeper of the Quake <laughs> at this point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh... so it's it's been very good, very exciting. And as I was sitting next to you, I had the distinct pleasure of of talking about kind of briefly about 40 mm. years in the industry for you. Yeah, and and this is your 40th. Anniversary. So you are 1979? 1979, I came into the industry, yeah. So so talk to me about what was happening before 1979 for you, and how did you end up in the business? Uh,
3: Before 1979, I was at university. So I was born and brought up in Edinburgh. Okay. And then went to university in Edinburgh, to uh, Harry Watt University, did chemical engineering. Okay. Didn't want to go into the oil industry, Looked for something different. And ended up in a company that made process equipment. And the process equipment just happened, or the division I was in, just happened to specialize in whiskey industry. So oh. we made things like mash tuns, so the original mash tuns at uh, Glenn Rothis or Tamatin were made by this company in Fife, and we made byproducts equipment. So I was visiting the likes of Combination of Rothis Distillers, Bunahavan Distillery, Convo Moore Distillery, which is Convo Moore's the one that's no longer going. Mm. So that was me for two years working in the industry, albeit for a supplier company, sure. but very much part of the industry and seeing that was going to be my future.
1: So uh, so historically speaking, what did the industry look like towards the very end of the 70s, very beginning of the 80s? The,
3: the industry very much looked like my first impression as an outsider coming in was an industry where Our HM, Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC, Controlled it. There were uh, there were officers at each distillery. There were watchers who stood on the doors <laughs> and looked at casks going in and out, uh, and then the, the officers above them controlled them. Okay. Um, the The industry was pretty heavily dependent, even then, on external mulsters, but there were still probably a few more. Floor maltings around, but external maltsters. In Dufftown, I recall, uh, there was a siding, a railway siding that had large malting silos that the local distilleries would take their their malt from. Hmm. Um, The industry was changing, becoming more efficient fermentation-wise, so there was a, a change in that direction.
1: Was that the beginning of the move from a brewer's yeast to a distiller's yeast? Was, was that happening in that That window? was a
3: bit later on. It was still very okay. much brewer's yeast were okay. part of it. Uh, all my early recipes, uh, when I, at that stage, and then moving into to Arthur Bells, who I joined two years later, right through my period of Bells and even into Highland in the, in the mid-80s, we had brewer's yeast to almost 50%.
1: Oh wow! So there's okay.
3: a lot of brewer's yeast around, uh, and then that started to become more difficult to get. Uh, so that's definitely be, that between then and now, that's been one of the biggest changes: is, is brewer's yeast to all distiller's yeast. Um, also, when I I started and when I was uh, prior to joining Bells, even most of the distilleries in Speyside had lightly peated malt. So they would ask for lightly peated malt from the Maltsters. Okay. And that again has changed, so a lot less peat around.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I came into whiskey in the middle of the 90s, mm-hmm. and as people talked about the regions, yeah. Speyside and Highland were never talked about as having any peated mm-hmm. component. Mm-hmm. And then when you cut to the very beginning of the 21st century, and some Highland producers and Speyside producers started introducing some... Lightly peated malts Pe- mm. People were Younger people I'm yeah. assuming now Were a bit up in arms Oh That's not that style That's That's you just trying to get On the Isla mm. boat now But you're saying No that really was A return yeah. for them To a style that they had been making Even 20, 30 years yeah. prior
3: Without a doubt I mean Balvenie still has Peat in it. Sure. it Always had peat in it uh, And all the um, All the malt supplied from the malts, there tended to be lightly peated malt. There were some people trending towards zero peat and even lighter peat, but okay. they had lighter peated malts. It was direct fired kilns in those days when I started as well, which then changed because of the nitrosamine scare and uh, cancerous scares.
1: Give it, what was that word you just used? try. Uh, nitrosamines. Nitro, please talk to us about nitrosamines. Uh, well they, they,
3: these are compounds that uh, partly are generated during the malting process and particularly over direct firing, so they come mm. out of a direct fired kiln. Huh. So.
1: Okay. These and, and then those were connected to cancer?
3: Yeah, they, they were. The potential if spurs. I remember correctly, it came through the LCBO with the first organization to pick these up and, and okay. that put the pressure on distillers to reduce nitrosamines. Wow. And uh, from there they drove and um, the drive went on to become indirectly fired kilns and maltings. Okay. And also hmm. there's people are much more aware of cleaning stills and sure. having fresh copper etc. Sure. But that, that was a big change.
1: Hmm. What was the general um, timber of of the industry? Was it a a hopeful industry at that point? Was it recovering from what it had seen in the 60s? Was there a sense of what was about to happen with some of the closures in the the early and mid 80s? Um, There was a drive
3: there tended to be a drive to becoming more efficient that's both in fermentation and mashing and fermentation to become much more hygiene, hygienic around the, the fermentations.
1: Okay.
3: Uh, there was also a real drive to becoming more oil efficient uh, and more fuel efficient, drive the energy costs lower. Okay. And that's very much when I joined Bells, where my focus became. The industry itself was very much still focused on blends. It was driven by by blend. You know, I worked for Bells. There was no... Thought about bells becoming single malts. <laughs> sure. um, and even when I joined Highland Park and then on to Glen Rothes, that, that was a company that was dominated by famous grouse. Mm-hmm. There was no real thought about those coming out as large single malts. That was a sphere that kind of Glen Fiddick had to itself in those uh-huh, days. Uh-huh. Um, but the industry itself was, I would say, a, a it was buoyant and such as it still saw a good future and it could grow, but certainly nobody envisaged what would happen. Certainly uh, in my sphere, uh, with the the closures that came very quickly, and then I would see the the growth of the likes of Johnny Walker, some of the super, almost super products or <laughs> super brands as they are now, and the single malts.
1: Huh? Can, I really want to. In a moment, come back and and really speak about your history and how you mm. went from you know place A to place B to place C. Could you just could you brought it up a second ago? Could you speak a little bit to what was causing those nineteen eighties closures? Since you were right in front of them,
3: uh, they, they were partly generated by by uh, fuel crisis and needing to know reduce energy usage, but they were also partly generated by stocks that had got out of control where there was a dip in the whiskey sales, stocks were high, and suddenly one company in particular, but if you had lots of distilleries, which was United Distillers in those days, rationalized. Mm. And it became mm. pretty easy thing to do, just shut down some of the smaller, oh, okay. remote, more remote
1: distilleries. Interesting. Okay, that's that frames it very nicely, very nicely. Thank you for that. Okay. And this is you know, (laughs) it's always one of those compliments that I want to give someone when I'm saying like this is this is like a living history, right? You've got forty years of seeing this up Mm -hmm. up close and immediately, and so you never like say, oh, I love talking to the old boys because you're not an old boy. You've been in it just your whole bloody life. Like that's like that's Mm. the reality for you. You left university, you went into products. Yeah. And then from products, you then made it into distilleries proper. Mm-hmm. So where yeah. where did you go? What was that transition from the product side into the distillery side?
3: Uh, it, it was really, I'll be honest, seeking the very first opportunity. And the opportunity came in the way of Bells. We're looking for a chemical engineer. Uh, so I joined Bells uh, and the general manager was a chemical engineer. He went another one to follow him in. And it was only when I got the job that I was then told... I was actually recruited as a chemist
2: hmm.
3: because it was the only way they could get it past the managing director. That one chemist had left, or the, the chemist for the group had left, so the new chemist was coming in. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent part of my time in the lab and part of my time in chemical engineering and trying to become more efficient at all our distilleries in terms of oil usage and, well, steam usage or oil usage predominantly out of
1: that well was the company open to whatever you were bringing to them was there some sense of hesitancy with this is partly the way we've always done it how close can we adhere to those traditions or were they really into the you tell us how to do it best and we'll put that in place
3: um, what where we were was the company w- was headed by Raymond Miguel at the time, who was very much a, a cost-driven person. So he was he was looking to reduce costs right across the board. Hmm. Uh, the general manager, uh, he was also of similar elk, so it was easy for me to, to work with w- within that environment.
1: Okay. Oh, that's nice to walk into that. Yeah, it it, <laughs> it is.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, I like to say too much more. <laughs> yeah, um, and then how long were you? How long were you in that position? And did your role evolve in that position?
3: The the role definitely evolved. I was three years with Bell's. It was very much focused on reducing costs at the three distilleries, four distilleries they had at the time, which were uh, Duffing Glenlivet, Glen Glenlivet, which is no longer there, which was adjacent to it, Inchgower and Blair Athol mm, okay. and then about a year before I left so it was two years into the role they acquired Bladnock mm. so I went down at Bladnoch, that had been shut for a few years and my role there was to project manage putting in new equipment automating in our words and uh, restarting the the oh. plant at
1: Bladnock. And how did that go?
3: That in my opinion went great uh, In from my angle, it went very well. Um, we got the new equipment in. We had very limited value. It wasn't uh, today and today's PC controlled. There were three term controllers. Somebody still went around and kind of dialed up the temperatures we needed, but this was something almost unheard of. Yeah. Um, and the plant worked pretty efficiently by okay. the time we, we finished. Um, over time, I found it was only myself and an engineer from electrical engineer from Dufftown that went down. That's,
1: that was <laughs> the, the support for the company. <laughs> and so that would have been around the mid-eighties. That was eighty-four.
3: Okay, and then so left there in eighty-four. The role as manager at Highland Park came up. So I was yeah I was twenty-eight
1: at the time. Went up and became manager at <laughs> Highland Park. Which, which sounds like a remarkable achievement. Was it considered such at the time? Were you a, a, a young... I was definitely up. considered extremely young <laughs> for the
3: job, yeah, yeah. without a doubt. Um, uh, I was replacing somebody was probably in his 40s.
1: That, okay, so also not that old yeah, to, to be replaced yeah, there. Yeah. Um, how how did you feel as a twenty eight year old being put in charge of Highland Park? What type of reputation did Highland Park have at that it, time?
3: It had uh, I had the reputation not as a single malt as we know it today, but I had the reputation within the industry as being an absolutely fabulous malt. Hmm. Um, I can always remember uh, when we had when I was leaving and we had a dram with everybody down at Dufftown Glenlivet. And one of the warehouse man says, Whatever you do, don't bloody change that Highland Park whiskey. It's fantastic. <laughs> and that, that was the days that, uh, when Christmas came in those days, I'll be honest, we we would end up, we would come into the distillery with an empty lemonade bottle, and that would be filled up But <laughs> we'll spirit out the stuff. Uh, sorry, out the warehouse. Okay. So there were. There weren't in those days the products that you get nowadays for employees. Oh, okay. Certainly not within the Bell's
1: group. Okay, so it was kind of a an understood there would be a looking the other way, or or even just a, it was a. That's one of the perks of the job, it was, is it? something from a cast. I, I think cask? the only
3: it was a perk from the job within the company. HMRC looked the other way in those days. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. Um so so what was Highland Park used for at, at that point? Uh,
3: predominantly was- we go into the blends. Yeah. the blending systems okay. which would be famous grouse and sold around elsewhere. There were small sales of of single malts. Every every distillery had their own small sales, particularly locally. Okay. But okay. you know the, it was it was interesting because the the Everything was focused on famous grouse. People would, uh, John McPhail was a chairman at the time. John Goodwin was the MD. They would come up with others in the board with invited visitors, to, um, importers, etc., mm-hmm. And they would visit Highland Park as one of the distilleries in the group that contributed. But about two and a half years, Two, two and a half, three years later on, I moved down to Glenrothes because that was seen as a bigger and much more important oh, distillery hey. in the company <laughs> because it was predominantly the distillery that fed uh, Famous Krauss.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so when I first met you, we had talked about the 30-year-old Highland Park that was mm. hitting the market. That would have had your stamp on it, so that would have been somewhere around. I'm trying to do quick math and failing miserably. Somewhere around the 2000 and uh, well, I I was 84
3: so. to 87. I was at Highland okay. Park.
1: Okay, so so 20 years would be 2004. So 30 years would be 2014. 14. Okay, and we've known you, okay. I think, since about uh, geez, probably two,
3: about ten, 2009 or 10.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah,
3: because that's when I was at I was Glen Glasser between exactly. eight and thirteen.
1: Exactly. So, so what? <laughs> one of the things Josh and I are always talking about here, and one of the things we talk about in our tastings is when I first got into the industry, just even just mm-hmm. as a fan, I used to think someone like Lafroig would run their spirit, and they would say, "Okay, that's all destined for Lafroig ten. Store it away. We'll come back to it in ten years." And I thought all distilleries did that. And then as I learned a bit more, it became clear. Oh, no, you just run your stills every single day. Yep. You put liquid into a cask, it goes into a warehouse. And then as you go along, you look at your stocks and you see what can go where. Yep. That Highland Park 30 then that came out with your DNA from your 84 through 87, that was just juice running through the stills. There yep. was nothing done specially. It was At that time, was there the thought of there ever being? A Highland Park thirty standing as a single malt. No, no, because single malts were not seen in that light. If, if you yeah, could definitely not if you could go back and have a conversation with yourself in those mid eighties, do you think the the you of the mid eighties could have conceived of where single malt would ultimately go, or or how single malt would ultimately rise?
3: You know, in those days we had this. Uh, I was part of this organization that was primarily driven by famous grouse. Mm -hmm. I left an organization that was (laughs) driven by Bell's Blended Scotch Whiskey. And the the large organizations were all blends. Very, very few people focused on single malts. And that was the way the industry, that's the way I always thought it would be.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, even though we were very, very proud of what we did at Highland Park, we we saw it as... It's interesting, within the company, we saw it as a fabulous whiskey. And I can remember going to managers' meetings because one of the distilleries we had in the group was Glenglasa. And Glenglasa shut. And I, And the reason I then when Glasser was reopened in 2008 and I was a person that identified it and went and talked to Highland. It was because within that group of, within Highland in the 80s, everybody realized it was a fantastic whiskey, Mm -hmm. but it didn't really feature too heavily in famous grouse and the company had tried to change the product so it was more like Glenrothesis and failed, Mm -hmm. and everybody knew within the group it was a fabulous malt whiskey in its own right and should be better uh, recognised,
1: and it wasn't. As opposed to shut more in its history than it was ever open.
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And now, rightly, it is getting the recognition
1: it deserves. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and in no small part due to you, and your efforts. I know you're too modest to say that, which is why I'm embarrassing you on the podcast.
3: Having said that, yeah. (laughs) If if there's one thing, I'll be honest, I've been really proud of it. It was when somebody said to me, find a distillery that's working, that has stock. Okay, I couldn't find a distillery that was working. But in my opinion, I found one that was damn sight better whiskey than most.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, well done. Well done. So, so in your history, we've got you at Glenrothes. Yeah. How many yeah. years were you at Glenrothes? Well,
3: Glenrothes, I was a couple of years that's when I also looked after Glen Glass at that time. Oh, okay. Because that had shut just before. A vacancy came at Glenrothes Distillery. The, the manager left the business. So I was asked to go down and look after Glenrothes and Glen Glasser, and the Glen Glasser manager went up to Highland Park. So it yeah. was an easily kind of move around okay for the organization so i was there two and a half years at the same time i was doing an mba by distance learning so kind of part-time and i just felt i could get a bit more money than i was getting <laughs> and uh, united no the distillers group i think they were called they had taken over they'd bought guinness no guinness had Bought over the Distillers Group. Okay. And I previously bought over Bell's. So Guinness bought Bell's, then Guinness bought the Distillers Group, and then United Distillers came out of that organization. Okay. And I joined United Distillers as a project manager in Glasgow. Okay. Uh, and that was with my chemical engineering hat on. I, I became this project manager. Interestingly enough, the, my director came from the same organisation I first started with, company leaving in Fife, and so did at least one of the other distillery uh, project managers.
1: Interesting. So okay. it
3: was a bit of a okay. all-in-there-together. So that was 15 months, which maybe tells you a bit about how much I enjoyed it, but <laughs> uh, certainly in those days, United Distillers... It was much more difficult to make a decision. It was much, it had to go to committees and it took meetings and oh, okay. it took a bit of time. So I was involved in trying to put new louder tons into a number of distilleries in Speyside. Okay. That, that's really what I was uh, looking f- at. For efficiency reasons? Uh, for efficiency reasons, for modernization, for higher throughput.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then.
3: And within that 15 months, I involved uh, certainly with three different projects, three major ones, I recall, none of which actually got signed off within the time, which tells you how slow everything (laughs) was. And unfortunately, about six months before I left, the general manager at Glenfiddich died, and I applied for his job and was recruited to that organisation. Oh my goodness. And um, so I became general manager of Glenfiddich Balvenie in Canenve, which had opened earlier in the year. And in contrast to my fifteen months, I was fourteen years with William Grant. So <laughs> I just felt it was a fantastic organisation, and rather than a company that you had to go through several meetings and. Kind of committees to get things signed off. He was a company that said, "You push as much as you want, and we'll tell you when you push too far."
1: Wow. Okay. Well, you can certainly hear how successful that was with you being there for fourteen yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the things that you that you did in those fourteen years that you that you remain most proud of? Um,
3: I think one of certainly one of them was, and again, as part of being a team as you were there, but it was very much identifying that the cask stock of William Grant's needed refreshed.
2: Oh, okay. So we
3: needed to get new cask stock in. The maturing stock was not as good as it should have been, and we we did that, and William Grant's put a phenomenal amount of money into getting good, fresh cask
1: stock into it. That's so interesting that you say that, because it certainly is one of the one of the companies in the industry that you always think of them having great casks, you know. I, I you know, Glenfiddich has great casks. Balvenie mm. has great casks. You know, we don't. I've never once questioned that in my time learning about whiskey.
3: The early nineties, they the, didn't have. That's phenomenal. Have. Ah,
1: that's wonderful. This yeah. is why I like these conversations. <laughs> um, okay, so so that was one of the things, Cass. Another one that you were particularly proud of that um, has your stamp on it. I was,
3: yeah, it was. As I say, less about individualization mm-hmm. in many ways, but it, it was when we put in uh, gas firing into number two stillhouse at Glenfiddich, oh. so number one was still all coal, we put in number two, and the amount of work that we did to make sure we replicated the way the coal firing worked took months and months and months, William Grant didn't want to do anything that was going to spoil the
1: New mix for it Sure, sure. So, so what? Again, this is this is a new one for me because I've never had the the chance to learn about coal fired. What what does coal do that was so good or so positive or well, it's, I
3: wouldn't even say it's whether it's good or yeah. positive. Is because it's a different method of firing because it heats it up, but you can't then control it and turn it down as you can with oil, uh, which is less likely to burn, Okay. so coal needs a different type of control, and then to try and control the wash needs a different way of working as well, so you want to replicate that which is less efficient,
2: mm-hmm.
3: but doesn't change the spirit character. So you can change the spirit character if you, you heat up very, very quickly or if you allow the wash to burn on the bottom. Uh-huh. So you don't want to be doing those if you want to try and replicate what you did before. That sounds like an impossible task.
1: How did you even go uh, about pulling it off? Well, You,
3: you do that just by... You, you, uh, put in rec- you, you put in measuring equipment so you can see the heat profile it's taking place plus you take sample after sample you rely on working with people like David Stewart who was obviously the head blender and uh, the head nose and therefore you, you match the spirit profile the heating profile with the spirit profile you're taking off Wow! and then you make sure when you put the new ones in that you just replicate that
1: and you, and you did, you were successful
3: yeah, we, we were and it, it takes a long time to do it <laughs> but it's, it's a case of just being very diligent in everything you do.
1: Okay, that level of attention to detail mm, yes. uh, and looking at every yeah. number available to yeah. you. Man, well, well done. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so from from your time within William Grant's, I know you spent time down in Girvan. Uh, uh, that's right. So I was at... powerhouse grain distillery now. Yeah. Column so I, distillation.
3: I, I was five years uh, in the, the malt side and then I moved down to... Governance a year there before taking on the distilling director role, but it was total contrast here somewhere that you can make, certainly these days, probably as much in a week as some of the smaller distilleries make in a year. Yeah. Uh, massive distillery, huge fermenters that I'd never seen the like of before, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and something that was literally computer-controlled in those days, very much from a control room. But it still needed the operators to go, particularly on the distillation side, and take samples and make sure
1: it works. What was it like having been in, in on the malt side for so long to now be on the grain side? Is it is it a different product? Is it a similar product? Clearly, the raw ingredient is different, the style of distillation is different, but it is still... A whiskey whisky running through a still. It's, it's
3: still whisky running through a still, but you are talking about a very small amount of malted barley and the mm-hmm. majority uh, wheat. Then you're talking about cooking, which is a process you don't need in single malt. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, fermenters, and then a continuous column, which more or less looks like an oil refinery. Uh-huh. Uh, and sacrificial copper in there. And you end up with a very clean whiskey, but it's definitely whiskey. It's not vodka. In those days, we had Mm -hmm. a neutral spirit still. So we made neutral spirit as well, but we had a very clean, light whiskey. Sure. That is just a different style of whiskey. And one, I would say, because we, we, we... we did some buying of other whisky, other grain whiskies for the blend, because Grant's Family Reserve is a, is a big selling blended whisky, and we also had Clan McGregor. So we, we bought and we sampled others, and I would say ours was the cleanest and most consistent mm. whisky, but that was partly because it was reasonably mm. new equipment in those days. Uh, stainless steel stills and very much controlled by computers.
1: Okay. Very consistent. So stainless steel stills. A moment ago, you just mentioned there was, sacrificial copper, with, there was copper within
3: there. So that's called sacrificial. So that adds, adds a copper element.
1: Okay. So, so, so when you say sacrificial, to me it sounds like you're running through that copper real fast.
3: Uh, no, not so much. You're okay. still eroding over time. Okay. Uh, but uh, it is over time. You monitor it, and then you put more copper in. Okay. So you know where the copper packing is and when you need to replace it.
1: So where did the term sacrificial copper come because from? Because it does still erode over gotcha, time. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I've, I've never heard that term at all. So, right.
3: so um. it is still like, you know, a copper pot still. Mm-hmm. You'll need to replace it, the, the, particularly the shoulders, and particularly the condensers. Okay. And you, you need to replace elements in your... Um, your grain stills as well if you've got copper ones.
1: Okay. How does the stainless steel do? Does the stainless
3: it- steel is fine. It's okay. kind of stainless steel. It doesn't corrode or erode okay. either. That's so a,
1: okay. That's amazing. I didn't even know there was stainless steel. You know, for me I mm. you know, haven't gone around a grain distillery in Scotland. i I've, yeah. I've gone around Kentucky distilleries and see mm-hmm. their column stills, yeah. but there's a lot of copper certainly on the outside yeah. of their stills, and so to know that Scotland was is doing stainless steel with my new term sacrificial yeah. copper is a is a new one for me today. Well, so.
3: if you ever go down to Garvin, mm-hmm. uh, and before you get there you see the large distiller on your left hand mm-hmm. side, you will see the stainless steel columns sitting outside.
1: There you go. Okay. God, I've driven by it hundreds of times as well, yeah. maybe even thousands of times. Um, I grew up 20 minutes away from Girvan uh, Distillery in the So yeah, I've seen it yeah. many times. Um, so it, so a, a little question, just putting a pin in the whiskey life for a second. You're a, at this point, you're a young man, you're a married man, you're starting a family mm-hmm. and you're, you're moving constantly. Yeah. You're here, you're there, you're what was it like raising a family and being focused on a career that took you all around Scotland?
3: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. It was a consideration and that's, that's why when it came to Girvan, um it was consideration where we lived because I'd always lived very close to the distilleries. So mm-hmm. we still did. We we took a house in Girvan and then uh, we moved into the distillery house at Girvan at first. And then we moved into a house in the centre of town. Um, but up until then, you know, I, I can't think my daughters were probably in uh, at least one house in, in Orkney and... Uh, one house in Rothes and one house in Cumbernauld, which is where we stayed when we were at Diageo, and then another house in Glenfiddich. So we were moving constantly, and mm-hmm. they saw a number of primary schools. And therefore, when we got to to Girvan, we didn't move again after that till they both left school. Uh, so okay. it, it oh, okay. wasn't consideration. We we probably. We we like living rurally. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good way to bring up kids. Mm-hmm. and uh, But yeah, it meant a lot, A bit of moving for them, unfortunately. <laughs> Don't think either of them think it is. it was too bad, to be honest.
1: Good, good, good. No, it's funny, actually, because the first time I met... Uh, Jen, uh, Jennifer Nickerson As you know is your daughter But for listeners is Stuart's daughter And we've interviewed Jen for the podcast over Mm -hmm. here Um, But the first time I met Jen in New York City She and I were talking about Girvan Because there was me growing up in Ayr And we moved down to Maybowl Here she was moving across Scotland Now down in Girvan And uh, just talking about what it's like Being a young person in Girvan But it was an immediate connection for us where you never think you're going to go into New York City and talk to somebody about Girvan. Definitely not. I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was great. Um, and so then so then you're at Girvan for for how long and then where did you move on after that? Ah, uh, well, Girvan...
3: jeez. Uh, when did I move to Girvan? Late 90s. I think it was eight years in Girvan. Uh, okay. We left Girvan in 2004. Both girls left university. I felt it was time to move on. Left William Grant's very amicable terms, both very happy. And I decided to to work on my own, which I'd always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Suddenly realised it's not quite so easy to to start working on your own, but that's life. <laughs> and then I th- that was two thousand four, two thousand six. Somebody came along, and said we want you to do some. Due diligence on a couple of distilleries for us We're going to buy one of them So we did the due diligence And decided to buy one And then the company that were selling it Changed the terms and conditions Of the ah. sales So these investors who were Russian Never bought it So turned their attention on the second distillery mm. And this exact Same thing happened We agreed terms And then the seller said No I want oh, to change no. those terms so we didn't buy that one either. <laughs> so they went away and said, we don't trust any more Scotsmen.
1: That's a terrible position for the Scots yeah. to put themselves in.
3: And then three months later, they phoned me up and said, just find me a distillery. Or find us a distillery. It's got to be working. It's got to have some stock and it's got to produce excellent whiskey. Okay. And I looked around, couldn't find anything that was working. But I approached Highland and said, I'd like to buy Glen Glassa. Uh, and there was a few strange looks at me and <laughs> uh, one of the people that was in the deal at the time had never visited Glen glass distillery there were people in the company that didn't even know what it was <laughs> and we ended up buying it and it I'll be honest and uh, really thankfully to Edrington, the stores are pure gentlemen throughout. it. They, Wonderful. We agreed the, the terms, and there was various hiccups because the money was coming from Russia. It seemed to take a, an awful lot longer to come through from HMRC, get all our approvals, and we we just kept on with the deal. Hmm. And it was fabulous, and it, it went through.
1: If if memory serves, was Glenglassaich closed about? 20 it was years? closed 20 some in years?
3: 1986 because okay, I, yeah, I remember that. just before yeah, I, remember I came down. Number. So yeah. it was 22 years it was closed.
1: Perfect. Okay. And then, so what was your what was your challenge at that point? Then now you're walked into a distillery that's been closed for 22 years, and you're charged with getting that operational again.
3: Well, we we agreed a budget. I would agreed a budget with investors to bring it back to life. Okay. So that was uh some figure, sum of money okay. to put in. So spoke to Forsyth, the main manufacturers, and we put it back together again. So that was, we t- I took over on the 29th of February,
2: mm-hmm.
3: always remember the day, mm-hmm. uh, 2008, and by late November, it was early December of that year, we had the first installation going. Mm-hmm. So we had the chance to put it together. Uh, Graham Janssen, who's now production director at Tomatin, came Mm -hmm. on board. And we got it up and running for that day.
1: So, for what you mentioned earlier on here in your own history, Mm -hmm. so you were pretty much the guy that refurbished Glenglasa in the 80s. And now here you are, basically refurbing your own. No, that was
3: blanock in the eighties. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, Stuart. Sorry. Yes. Yeah,
1: because uh, are shut in the eighties. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Um, I thought that was going to be a really you know wacky connection for yeah. you there. Um. Okay. So so now you've you've got it from February twenty nine into early December. Mm. You have now got a distillery operational for yourself. You knew the style of spirit that you wanted to run from the stills?
3: We knew exactly what whiskey we wanted in 30 or 40 years' time. Mm. We had a bit of that left in cask. Mm -hmm. Um... Working back from that, I wouldn't say we exactly knew, but we did have records, because I went down to uh, the Business Library in Glasgow, where there's some very, very old records that Highland had put into place there, and looked at for Glenn Glassa and we found the records of the last few years' production as well, so we looked at those, so we did have an idea of when the cut point should be. Wow. And that was what we, we strived to try and recreate what we thought was the whiskey of those
1: days. That's remarkable. And uh, when you were talking about um, getting a contract with Forsyth's, was there some of that historical knowledge in place when you went to Forsyth's? Did you know the stills that had run before? The stills that had been in they, place they, there?
3: Well, the stills were already there, so they didn't have to do anything with the stills. The oh. mash tun was already there. So it was yeah. more pipes and pumps ah, and, okay. and things. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: So you didn't furbish new new stills no. for Glen No, stills,
3: the, the stills, the fermenters, the mash okay. tun, everything was still there.
1: I do remember from one of my very first visits with you and Ronnie Rutledge at Glenglassa. Y- one of the little tricks in going around a distillery is you can always tell the wash still because it's got a window on it. Come and on. at Glenglasa, it's your spirit still that has the window on it. We bo- They both have windows. They both have windows. Yeah, what happened was... How did that was, come
3: to be? That, that was the one change we, we made because the spirit still was slightly bigger than the wash still. Okay. Um, nobody ever knew why. <laughs> so what we did was we swapped them back again. Okay. Just to make it easier for our running. Okay.
1: And it worked yeah, for you? It
3: worked. It worked. the job? Yeah. And, you know, at times a great thing was, and a good thing about people like Graham is prepared to try things. So we hmm. we tried a few things at times with the distillation, but we went back to the initial uh, cut points and running rates that we had from the Highlandies—that's
1: fantastic. It really is. You then, in trying to establish a brand, had the kind of the unenviable un- challenge of having crazy old stock mm. and crazy young stock, and nothing in between. Yeah. H- how did you? How did you respond to that type of challenge?
3: Uh, it was a difficult. Well a difficult one because we only had a very small amount of stock. There wasn't, if I remember right, it was less than 500 casks. So we had some stock that was 40 years old, some 30, and some from 22 years onwards. <laughs> so we released a 40-year-old, a 30-year-old, and what we called a 21-year-old, but then we changed it as time went on because people would rather pay for a 22 rather than just a 21. Okay. Um... And we very much kept the price point at the top end. And we just not deviate from that. You know, we, we had people saying, uh, retailers, importers, wholesalers, saying if you drop the price, we'll sell more. Well, we didn't have a hell of a lot of stock to sell. So uh-huh. therefore, you make sure you, you maximize, because they were absolutely excellent quality products,
1: without a doubt. Yep, agreed. We put
3: them in good packaging. Um, we, I can remember, we had to go and get on the Glen Glass a particular twenty. So in on all the bottles now we use a particular. You would call it a logo, mm-hmm. but we yeah. actually, I met the Lord Line of Scotland, so that we got a Glen Glass coat of arms. So that coat of arms for Glen Glass was only created. In 2008, 2009, one of the two. <laughs> so that was the idea of Ian Buxton, in fact, because Ian was working as uh, okay. part time ma- marketing director uh-huh. at the time. Uh-huh. So uh, that was Ian's initiative, and I met a Lord line of Scotland to make sure that we had to adjust a few bits and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and so the logo was
1: then successful? That was
3: a. It was. It has been very successful, and we've used it. On every bottle since that's remarkable
1: so as you're balancing that top end you've got this luxury yeah. product coming out from Glenglassa you're then doing, yeah. doing what with the young stock well What's with the, your-
3: the issue was that the distillery was bought primarily by a, one main investor but with other friends of his as he wanted to own a Scotch whisky distillery. Mm-hmm. But then he put the operational investment and running into one of his companies based in Lithuania. He weren't really too interested in it. Mm. So we were very much, we had to survive on our own with the occasional top-up of money loans from them, but we really had to survive on our own. Okay. So one of the, the ideas was to, to release our own New Make spirit. And we released that, mm-hmm. and uh, again an Ian Buxton name, which was fabulous. It was the spirit drink that dare not speak its name.
1: <laughs> I remember
3: that release. Because, yeah, we we had to. We were told we were not allowed to to use to call it whiskey. So uh-huh. Ian was very much <laughs> of this opinion. And then we followed that up with. Uh, some whiskey that were maturing in red wine cask Which came the spirit drink that blushes to speak its name
1: Okay, I remember blush I didn't remember the full title no, within full it But okay, blushes to speak
3: And then it. we had fledgling Which was 18 months in bourbon cask
1: Okay Okay, at the time that you were putting out non-whisky Your yeah. spirit mm-hmm. product Yeah Clearly Kilhoman was around the same time Kind of showing us yeah. showing out but there wasn't a lot of it in the Scottish industry and certainly American craft who kind of started coming out with much mm. younger stuff. They weren't quite in that position yet either. What kind of feedback were you getting that a Scotch distillery, a Scotch whiskey distillery was putting out young product? Not an eight-year-old, not a 12-year-old, just that young product. Uh,
3: the feedback was of interest to the whiskey, the, the growing, and I suppose it was well, they established and continually growing single malt enthusiast. Mm-hmm. So it was of interest. I suspect there's more interest now. There's mm-hmm. like oh, more yes. available. Yes. You know, and I, I'll be honest, I'm very interested. I, I love to try new mix for it. Uh, and I just thought ours was fabulous. But the, the interest still had to grow. And still many whiskey, even many whiskey shops would say, I don't understand what it is you're trying to sell. Would what, <laughs> what do you want me to say to my consumer? How do they drink this? Mm-hmm. So well, that was a difficult one.
1: And I remember you know, in, in first meeting you in connection with Glenglasa, you were even looking at cocktails with that product as well. A, yeah. a way to get it used and discussed. And and I think you know, back 10 years ago. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of people talking about that either. And I, I really felt like you were doing, you're, you're kind of setting the table for what would then come later within the industry, which is cocktails have been embraced now. Every big brand mm. has gotten a accompanying cocktail, but it wasn't the case 10 years ago.
3: Well, I think there, there were a number of things we had to do. We, we needed to, mm-hmm. to product innovate. And cocktails just seemed a natural thing. Uh, and we, we linked up with the guys at Bramble's Bar in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. which were a major cocktail bar. They'd done some work, I think, before with Glenn Fiddick, and they came up with creative with cocktails for us. So that was part of the stream. Um, I would buy every type of different cask I could get mm-hmm. from Speyside Cooperage because I wanted to mature in different types of casks and see the influence of the different casks. And that's why there are a range of casks at Glen Glasser Distillery that, that we've tried. Um, I visited the Crimea on several occasions because we linked up with Massandra and brought out the Massandra collection
2: mm-hmm.
3: with casks and which have been matured in different styles of Masandra wines. And the Other real big innovation that really helped us enormously was starting to sell individual casks, octaves, casks, 50 litre octave casks. And we ended up with several hundred of those being sold every single year.
1: And I was just about to circle back to that as well, because not only were you doing what a a number of startups, you know, Brooklady was doing it, Aaron was doing it, um, but you know, from my own experience and Josh and I owning a couple of these Octaves, you're welcoming people to the distillery. And mm. people were starting to consider Glen glassa their distillery. Yeah. You, you really were, you know, as a, as a consumer, you had a chance to become hands-on. And an Octave was incredibly affordable mm. and mm. matured reasonably quickly. Yeah. Slightly increased angel share, we came to find out. Mm-hmm. But... People could come, and, and, and I remember going through the warehouse and seeing people who had come for the birthday of their octave and had put party hats on yeah. the octave, or so I saw one where some people had brought a scarf to keep the cask warm. You I mean, Obviously, yeah. it wasn't doing anything, it was yeah. just, just the idea of it, but people really had their children mm-hmm. in your warehouse at Glenglassa and what a connection for people what a connection for the consumer I thought that was a very very smart thing to do
3: yeah I'll I'll be honest at the beginning we didn't anticipate sure that happening at all but it did work out great I can remember a pretty senior figure in the Scottish banking industry who bought one and I wasn't around the day he filled it he came for the filling and read a poem out (laughs) it's fabulous you know the connection people absolutely I've just bottled my last five okay. through the Mont Whiskey Company. Okay. And it's it was a wee piece of kind of me that's yeah. gone now because yeah. of
1: mine have gone. But there were fabulous things. Yeah. It's but even even the way you speak about that hmm. personal connection yeah. to it as well, it was such a a, a rich time mm. in the whiskey industry and and I could see the following growing around Glen yeah. Glassa, uh, as we engaged people in it and as we spoke about visiting the distillery. Uh, what, what a huge success. Really well done on that one. That was really Thanks. impressive. Um, so we can either go to Malt Whiskey Company next or Tipperary next, because these these are the contemporary Stuart Nicholson well, the, the, projects. The,
3: I suppose the, the,
1: there's three contemporary oh, Joe Pickerton oh, oh. projects. Oh, okay. um,
3: and the malt whiskey company one is probably the one that's smallest, lowest down. Okay. Um, it's, the malt whiskey company owns casks in Scottish warehouses and releases them on an infrequent basis just as it feels it's the casks are ready. Mm-hmm. Tends to sell one cask at a time into a market. Okay. Or two casks at a time into market, okay. whatever it is, but buy market rather than f- um, bottling a cask and then trying to find different markets to buy them. Sure, So it's sure. a slightly different model. Um, the other two projects, projects take up all my time. One is in Tipperary and one is in the most northerly island in the UK, which is in Shetland. And our plan is we have just released in Shetland, we have just released the first whiskey ever that has been partly matured on Shetland. Oh, there you go. Which is a blended malt scotch. So we took up four hogsheads of the blended malt that we get to produce for us with tomatin. So tomatin guys... Once again, produced the same blend for us Hmm. and then filled it this time into four sherry casks that we supplied. Oh, nice. So they have been up there for six months and just been filled now into bottles and were released on Friday for the first, as I say, ever finished in Shetland blended malt scotch whiskey. Uh,
1: what What is maturation? What is sitting in a cask in Shetland What's that climate like for maturation slash finishing? The
3: the climate is much more uh, marine, obviously. 100% surrounded by water. We're 60 degrees north, so a wee bit colder than it is here. (laughs) Having said that, you don't get the same extremes of temperature as you might get in the middle of the country. Okay. Um, Slightly higher evaporation just because the climate is there's more wind movement all the time, even through the warehouse. So you get slightly higher evaporation rates, but it's only six months, but you're getting the impact of the sherry cask, you're getting that marine saltiness to it. Uh-huh. So it's, it is an impact with there's that, those extra layers that you wouldn't have got previously.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Oh, well.
3: And the next stage of that project yeah. is, we're still looking to get funds to build a distillery there but we're now looking at possibly just building a smaller distillery so we can get started very quickly. Makes sense. Because it is the only place in Scotland that has never actually distilled scotch whiskey.
1: Aha. Uh-huh. So you don't want to race to get on there you just get, yeah. get your one open and That's it. be your so first. That,
3: that'll be the first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then to a country that has exploded with distilleries in the yeah, last...
3: Yeah, it has, and I've, I've been involved before. I, I was a distiller consultant for Walsh Whiskey when they opened Royal Oak. Okay, So I worked with uh, Bernard on that project for a number of years. And then uh, I've looked at some other projects for people. Then again, Jennifer came along. We had the discussion around about 2015 and Jen gave up her work at KPMG and decided to go into the distilling business. So I've been working with her and her husband and we are now a position where some stage next year we will probably about the end of first quarter we will start building a new two-ton distillery, which will give us about three quarters of a million litres per year on a four-star hotel, on the grounds of a four-star hotel at Dundrum. So we will, the distillery will be Tipperary Boutique distillery producing at that level. But come January, we will be producing at a much smaller scale, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: maybe one cask a week or two casks (laughs) a week on the farm that Liam owns. Liam's Jen's husband, uh, owns and very close to where they live. And we'll be producing a farm scale distillery. Fantastic. Making whiskey there.
1: We'll have to reach out to Jen and Liam to go over and visit that and take a look at that.
3: So we've placed the order. Placed the order yesterday, in fact.
1: Awesome. So the equipment
3: will go in, as I say, sometime in January. Wonderful. And surprise, surprise. I was across last week, as you know, there were two empty
1: octaves in the back of my car. <laughs> <laughs> so that little bit of Stuart Nixon DNA will continue on into bit the We better DNA
3: <laughs> as well, actually. <laughs> so we've got another couple to go
1: across in the future as well. Oh, wonderful. Really so. wonderful. Um, so what's, what's it like? Is there a difference building a distillery in Ireland than there is to building it in Scotland? Are there different regulations in place? Is it somehow easier, somehow more difficult? Not
3: hugely different. We're still working with uh, revenue as it's called over there. Um, Generally pretty much the same but, you know, there isn't the same history. There's not the Mm. same Mm -hmm. Sorry to all my Irish colleagues, they'll say there's longer history but there really isn't the same production history when you've only had For a long time, just two distilleries at Middleton and Bushmills, and then, you know, the last 20, 30 years of my time, not Mm -hmm. so long, Mm -hmm. uh, with Cooley, Yep. and now, obviously, there's been a big explosion, but generally, there isn't the same. You can't just find a distiller across there. You, You can't pick up the phone and speak to people. Although it's much easier when I can pick up the phone in future and speak to Dingle Distillery Manager, who is now Graham Cool, of course, who used to work for me at Glenfiddich. So uh, it's (laughs) much,
2: much easier.
1: Well, there you go. We've got my goodness. We've got multiple reasons to be in Ireland interviewing people as well. We've interviewed Graham a a couple of times from Mm. uh, from his time at Glen Murray. Glen Murray, yeah. Um, and so yeah, I. Gosh, I think Josh and I'll be off to Ireland sometime yeah, in 2020 you know, here.
3: And has got some some great whiskies as well and obviously they're just a bit different. Mm-hmm. The the triple mm-hmm. distillation makes it
1: that bit different anyway. So it's- so from a from a professional standpoint, what is happening between a, a second distillation and a third distillation? Is it simply cleaning it? Is it introducing something Uh, additional? What do you see there? It's it's
3: more, I would call it a refinement. Okay. So there is a refinement, you're increasing alcohol level and you're just lightening the whiskies. Mm -hmm. So the great thing that we'll be able to do, particularly at the farm, and that's part of the reason to get it started as early as possible, is just tweak the notes to decide how Mm. we want to run it, whether whether everything will be triple distilled or some will be triple and some will be doubled because, you know, the, as you know, I've liked to play about with maturation. I think maturation is so important. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to play about more with triple and double distillation as well when I'm across there. And then we'll look at the yeasts again as well because we all know the growth in craft breweries everywhere.
1: Yep. And I would love to get back to having some, some
3: brewer's yeast
1: fantastic that is music to our listeners ears we uh, mm. we talk about yeast a lot on the mm. podcast uh, and to hear you wanting to make some type of return yeah. to brewer's yeast um in terms of your experience from the, and i love the fact this mm. is bringing us full circle to what we started teasing now earlier as well what did you see as the differences in in flavor clearly Brewer's yeast was a slower acting, distiller's yeast really races mm. through and, and gets you a, a good alcohol real fast. Did you see the trade-offs there in terms of the flavours that Brewer's yeast was delivering compared to what distiller's yeast were doing? Or did you see something else between the two?
3: I think it, it, it was difficult to see, I would almost say, until, until it happened. Mm-hmm. you know. But in hindsight, I, I think there was a, a lack of some of the, the fruity... Fruity esters, I, I believe, and when that got taken out, so okay. is is getting some more extra flavors back into the product that I'd like to look at.
1: Well, and it seems like you're now in that position with the work at Tipperary, where you you can even play around with different distillers you can you know like our friends up in westland and seattle you can you know play around with some belgian brewer's yeast you you've
3: i I see i see i'll be honest both in tiberi and in shetland when it comes about we'll have the opportunities to showcase or or to produce products that have different characters
1: exactly exactly so instead of it just being grain Mm. You know, different grains doing different things yeah. You'll also have the yeast doing different yeah. things And then you'll have the, the casks yeah. The different casks for maturation Doing yeah, different and things as well What
3: you've got to remember in, in Ireland as well Is a couple of different things One, on the farm We will only use the grain that's produced on the farm Which is fantastic uh-huh. Absolutely fantastic and uh, obviously the water from the farm. But the, the second one is we have pots still in Ireland. So you have the unmalted product going in there as well. Now, whether that's unmalted wheat, unmalted barley, because we don't have to malt all the barley from the farm if we don't want to. Mm-hmm. The farm already produces oats. So Ah, let's try some oats in there as well. So we have got a number of greens that we can try over there as well.
1: Oh, oh, that's fantastic. That is definitely something to keep an eye on there. Cause it sounds a little bit like some of what we're seeing with the better American craft distillers is that level of experimentation. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting in speaking to you Stuart where such a a solid history with all the big boys. Mm. And now here you are getting a chance to experiment, play around with different grains. Does that does that excite you at this point in your career? Or is this a oh, is, yeah, is that, well, is Another feather
3: in your cap? Is it no? It's, it's nothing to do with having feathers in the cap. <laughs> uh, I love whiskey. Uh-huh. I do, uh, and I don't know how many whiskies we have in our house. I buy whiskies wherever I'm in the world uh-huh. because I want to try them, and then. Never finish a bottle, surprise, surprise. And this is all about what flavours can we create from different grains, from different mashing techniques, from different fermentation de- techniques with a different yeast, from different distillation techniques. You know, there's so much can be driven from out, from that. And that is without even talking about maturation and without talking about peated. Sure, you know? sure. And you add them into the mix and it's fabulous. And all we're talking about within that is single malt and pot still for Ireland.
1: Mm-hmm. And yet
3: the, the range is phenomenal within there.
1: So, so we started out by talking you're 40 years into this <coughs> career. yeah, and, and you seem excited and enthusiastic about everything that's still to come for you.
3: Yeah, I I think there are greater possibilities I was going to say greater possibilities now and that is because I I definitely have much more control and impact at this stage of my career but if people had wanted to do those back in the late 70s early 80s, they should have been able to do it because there were still opportunities in those days Mm -hmm. to do it Um. But maybe it's because there's also been an explosion in the, you know, the craft side of the business, the smaller side of the business. There are now owners, if you like, like myself, like others, that can play about with these ideas.
1: So uh, we'll get out of here on on one final question for you. And it's a big question. Mm -hmm. What do you see ahead for the whiskey industry? What do I see ahead for that? That, wow! <laughs> um,
3: I think there'll be more more countries around the world will look for whiskey. I see whiskey having a very exciting future. I think more people will get into whiskey. Cocktails are exciting, but the great thing about whiskey and and rum, I suppose, as well, is that they're drinks in their own right. They don't need to be mixed with something mm-hmm. else. Uh, I think whiskey's a fabulous drinks <coughs> drink, and I think single malts, higher quality products, unfortunately a higher price as well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that is the future for the whiskey industry. I think it being less about volume mm. that, uh, and more about... Improved quality and improved range and improved exciting uh, products coming to market. Interesting. I mean, there's some great products. I've got some American whiskeys there that are are really exciting, and they're not necessarily what you'd call a bourbon, or they're not a bourbon whiskey, <laughs> which is all you had And kind of I remember. Sure.
1: Talked about bourbon whiskey. So, you so you think this industry will continue to innovate? It'll continue to improve in quality and it'll continue to build consumers.
3: I I think it will and I think the great thing about the Scotch and the Irish industries, because Irish are kind of following the Scotch, are about the excuse me, about the quality of the whiskey and the regulations around it. Mm -hmm. Because you don't need to move those regulations. You only use in Scotland malted barley for single malt malted barley, yeast and water. And the innovation you can do around that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. In Ireland, you've got the same and you add in the pot still, which allows you to do so, to create some products with unmalted grain. And suddenly you've got even more innovation. So you've got some fantastic products just around those. And I see the same types of innovation coming from Japan and I'm sure India and in future and yep. Taiwan and many more countries, definitely.
1: It's it's exciting to hear that from somebody who has seen 40 years of history Mm. up close and personal. Um, Josh and I love and respect you. Mm. Uh, Really appreciate your time today. You're clearly a very, very busy man. And uh, taking an hour out of your day for us, really appreciate it. Not at all We'll we'll let you have things go when we do make it over to Ireland. Brilliant. (laughs) Thanks ever so much, Stuart. Thank you. Cheers, man. Bye.
0: question to you Jason is what were you doing 40 years ago Uh, starting primary one so is that like first grade to us Americans
1: Uh, kindergarten
0: oh kindergarten okay so you were starting kindergarten (laughs) as he is making whiskey history as Uh as he's starting to make whiskey history how cool is
1: that Yeah, he's 17 years older than me all right which is funny, right? Because when you go down to that kindergarten age, starting a, a career, that's those are very far apart. When you then come up to this point in life, 17 mm. years, you know, from a guy in his mid-40s and a guy in his early 60s, doesn't seem that big of a gap.
0: No, no, it doesn't.
1: <laughs> it doesn't.
0: But, but, you know, getting to know Stuart and, and really appreciating him through the lens of Glen Glassa, and, and obviously he's gone on to do a good many other things and work with his with his daughter Jennifer Nickerson with with Tipperary. You know, I I often think about some Glen Glasso releases that he had nothing to do with mm-hmm. but have a special place in my heart because there's some very interesting nineteen seventy three Glen Glassas that have been somewhat legendary, like the family silver <laughs> 1973 Glenn Glassa release and they have released some of their own 1973 bottlings while he was the owner of the distillery and I just I love these little these little connections now knowing knowing him and um, knowing him through Glenn Glassa, now having an affection for that distillery it'll always be a part of my life as as will he
1: Exactly. And I said that to him as well, you know, the, the work that he and Ronnie did to connect whiskey fanatics to that distillery was remarkable. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that they were coming up with smart marketing ideas with no budget, I think, led them back to the authentic. Right. Which was come to the distillery, see yeah. your cask, go down the shore look at these old buildings, look at the way this used to be gravity fed, mm. right? Like what, like what a remarkable visit to any distillery if you're a whiskey nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think he and Ronnie delivered that in spades. And I really think it fast tracked the success of that distillery. And, and then as Stuart says in, in today's interview, within the industry... Glen Glassa had such a good reputation as producing such good spirit, but you know, those in charge of decisions couldn't really find a way to use Glen Glassa. Yeah, uh, yep. and it spent more years closed than it ever did open. But yeah, it, but it remains a, a remarkable place. So yeah, it, it's it's real special. And the other thing I would pivot back to, which you just mentioned a moment ago, uh-huh. is after those 40 years in the industry, getting a chance to work with his daughter, who we've interviewed Jen for, for One Nation Under Whiskey, mm-hmm. uh, and have thoroughly enjoyed her company you know, wherever we've met with her. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what a treat to be you know, 40 years into your career and getting to work so closely with your daughter, who is also a wonderful person.
0: Yeah, I can only
1: hope the same
0: for, for you and I when, when we're a little older. You mean in seventeen years? Uh, <laughs> uh, how old will you and I be in seventeen years? How old 63. are you? Sixty-three. <laughs> oh, and I'll be, I'll be sixty-four. So I will be able to sing um, when I'm sixty-four to you.
1: <laughs> oh, to me, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you singing will it to
0: you, me. Will you still
1: need me? Will you still feed me? I tell you, we'll we'll only be celebrating series twenty of this podcast. <laughs> uh so we'll have have one listener who's incredibly loyal
0: uh well Stuart thank you so much for spending time with Jason and (laughs) I say that to most people who spend time with me thank you for spending time with me I know it can be difficult right Jason is uh he he could be uh, a bit much
1: but uh but you made it through it Every time we stop recording the episode of this podcast, I always say to you off the air, Joshua, thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for spending time with me for the last however long. Yeah, yeah, I'm at my wits end, Jason. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: when I'm 64. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, I, I think what's likely best to do here
1: because we don't have too much news to share. Um, oh, we, we do. C- we could pivot back to closing out a piece of news that we shared in the last episode. So why don't we wake up the paperboy? Extra, all life
2: story, extra! Extra, all about it. that one of the,
1: one the, of the tasks history. that you had been charged with in my absence, Joshua. Oh, right was to launch the single cast nation cigar sales to the nation. Indeed. Yep. Yep. And, and we told the nation 200 boxes Mm -hmm. of 10 single cast nation cigars would go on sale November 12th. Mm -hmm. And the nation would have 24 hours to, you know, purchase those cigars. And then it would go on to general release. Yeah. And as we record here the, the morning of November 15, we know that just over 150 boxes of the 200 were sold in the first 48 hours of being available. That's, that is a lot. That's a fair few cigars. That's really impressive and, <laughs> and really as is always true, but, you know, there are these little moments in time that we get to shout it from the rooftops, makes me incredibly proud of the nation and the support that comes from the nation members. That was, you know, that was a... It wasn't a whiskey purchase, quite obviously. Mm -hmm. It was a, a... An untasted purchase where there weren't samples of the, the cigars floating around. Nope. <laughs> we, everyone was trusting Cigar Czar Yoni Miller on, <laughs> on his tasting notes for these cigars. Yeah. And, and yet people still bought, people still supported. And then just this morning, we saw a review from Cigar Authority who scored them incredibly well. It was remarkable to see fantastic review numbers. And the reason I'm not just simply giving a number for it is because Cigar Authority tasted seven of the ten cigars in four different ways and had four different scores based on those four different ways of smoking it, which you can tell I'm a newbie. I only know of one way to smoke a cigar.
0: Wow. There is another way, but I'm, I'm gonna let the listeners just kind of
1: the, the only way I know is long and slow. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've
0: got nothing, man. All, all I have are, all I have is laughter.
1: You know, what, what,
0: what I found interesting about the cigar review, and I told you this morning, this is the first time I had ever read a cigar review anybody who listens to this podcast will likely have read a fair few whiskey reviews from various bloggers and oh, yeah. journalists oh, yes. and, and, and things like that and you typically talk about you gauge color, nose palette finish and then sometimes people summarize, sometimes people give scores that make sense to the notes, sometimes not so much um, And, you know, and things like that, but with the cigar one, the fact that he's reviewing it with, with a rum, and then he's reviewing it with some bourbon, and then he's reviewing it with some of the Whiskey Jubilee bottling uh, that was associated with these cigars, right? We took that rye cask to mature these cigars, and you know, one got 91 points, one got 94 points, the other one got 92 two points or, you know, whatever the numbers were. The fact that each and every instance where he's giving it a score scored at least 91 points says something really good uh, about um, Agonorsa Leaf and and how they saw the blend go uh, with this rye cask, right? With the Habano... Yeah. Wrapper um, and the Nicaraguan filler and binder, like they knew what they were doing based on the smell of that cask. And and so I really want to tip my hat to them. Of course. Uh, and Yoni. Uh, yeah, uh, for, 100%. Right? Yeah, for really knowing how to put a good cigar together.
1: Yeah, and, and to add on to what you're saying there about the, the kind of the tasting process, for yeah. us with a whiskey, you pour a small dram. You knows it or you, you eyeball it, you knows it, you taste it. Like you, you get all the experience in the same sip, in the same moment. Now, yeah. it might oxidize a little bit as it sits, you know, maybe your bottle from being freshly opened to opened a couple of months later, you might see some differences. But in the grand scheme of things, when you taste a whiskey, it all happens in that singular moment. Yeah. What's interesting to me in reading the cigar review is. There's a review of the cigar at the beginning. How does it open? There's a review of the cigar unlit.
0: Yeah, the cold draw.
1: Right? Yeah. Then there's a review of the front of it. What's it like when it's getting started? What's it like as it transitions through the middle? And that's physically through the middle of the cigar, not the middle of the palate, like we talk about with whiskey. Yeah. And then what's the end of the cigar like? You know, what's that doing? And so to have tasted seven of the ten that's the same cigar again and again mm. and again through the front through the middle through the end through the cold draw through the inverse draw I, there's no shortcuts there that's essentially seven hours of that reviewer's time good lord isn't that remarkable that's
0: that is dedication yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I want I
1: want to give props to Cigar Authority for the amount of time they put into tasting the single Cast nation cigar.
0: Wow. I usually spend 20 back when we were doing the blogs, I would spend 25 30 minutes yeah. reviewing oh, yeah. a whiskey yep. and yep. and that was it and sometimes I would return to it sometimes I'd pour a little more if if I had more than just a, a wee little sample. But to spend 7 hours reviewing a cigar that that really is dedication so Ah,
1: ah, very cool very cool thing yeah um another quick little bit of news we do have some casks sitting in a bottling hall in scotland Mm -hmm. uh for those of you who follow singlecastnation.com and are are wondering why it's been so quiet uh very simple: we've been working on many many projects behind the scenes it's about to get a lot less quiet Uh, US retail release and we're not going to say too much more today but we will in a future episode start talking about the incoming 6th release Mm -hmm. and we'll probably have an update on the first UK European release Mm. but know that uh, I was over collecting some samples and doing some tasting with Jess on what a second UK and European release might look like as well yeah. So we are, we're we all go on numerous fronts, and, uh, and you will be seeing more from us shortly. Obviously, there's going to be more news to share
0: with the listeners, because we do have some things going on. But you and I, Jason, have been prattling on for a while now.
1: And... No need to change the model for the podcast now. <laughs>
0: But I imagine there's people just sick of hearing your voice. How dare you, sir? How
1: dare you? <laughs> How about we do an email and get out of here? Okay. You want to do an email? Yeah, because Philippe happened to write in, and, so, and it's very much in keeping with what we covered at the end of our last episode. I was, I was just thinking, I saw the email come in,
0: and when I saw his name... My mind, because we're getting to that time of year, uh, my mind took his name and and made a song out of it. And so (laughs) I I woke to this, and all of a sudden I was singing in my my head, Philippe Van Avong, Philippe Van Avong, Philippe Van Avong, instead of Feliz Navidad. Yeah. (laughs) So,
1: there you go. You're welcome, Philippe Fanavong. Uh, what's, what's the one of the bells? Because my kids, when they say jinx, jinx knock on wood becomes, jinx knock on wood, jinx knock on wood, jinx knock on wood, jinx knock on wood.
0: Jinx knock on wood, jinx knock
1: on wood. Right? Philippe Fanavong, Philippe Fanavong, Philippe Fanavong, Philippe Fanavong.
0: How about about this one? You ready? It goes. Philippe Fanavong. How's Silent Night go? Silent Night. Philippe
1: Fanavong. I don't think that one works. No, it doesn't work as well. (laughs) But Um, (laughs) according to Feliz Navidad, that was kind of interesting. (laughs) Oh, Oh,
0: gosh. Are we just singing a song using his name, or did he actually send in an email? No, he sent in an email. Um, <laughs> uh, did you want to read the email?
1: Yeah, I'm sure. It? It's, I'm sure it's another one that we're not going to have much response to. But, well, uh, it's really a suggestion. Uh, aren't they all? <laughs> well, it's, it's the world we live in now.
0: Yeah. Just, just make sure when you read this that you spell out uh, the URLs that he, that he posted.
1: he uh, we <laughs> sure about this? <laughs> okay, here we go. A potentially attainable interview guest with potentially in parentheses. Mm-hmm. Hi, gents. I hope things are going well for you both. They I'm are, sh- thank you. <laughs> I'm sure OND is a busy time for you. And I hope the tariffs aren't hitting you guys too hard. Well, Ooh, we heard just... the last episode, so here we are. <laughs> I've already seen several shops explicitly mention the tariffs on their websites. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how customers are receiving that. And then, yeah, he, he shares uh, a Spirits. He shares k Wines. Mm-hmm. However, I reached out to you today to propose a potentially attainable guest that has just released perhaps the most detailed whiskey book I've ever seen. Gregory Miller is a professor of chemical engineering at UC Davis Mm -hmm. and this year released Whiskey Science, a condensed distillation. Besides being a fantastic name for whiskey book, this is a graduate-level textbook published through a major textbook company. Whenever I hear that, I think, this is going to be hundreds of dollars. (laughs) That was my aside. That wasn't Philippe. No, I know. I know. I have access to it through UC Berkeley's library... And I can tell you, it is the most technical whiskey book I've ever seen. 500 plus pages of detailed science Sweet, and history. Fancy Moses. Wow. That could potentially blind you if read all in one sitting, <laughs> which is often it's, what we say about whiskey, right? Oh gosh, especially if you're <laughs> masturbating. <laughs> I tell you, whatever it takes to get you there. Um, (laughs) I would love to hear you guys pick Professor Miller's brain. He's giving us far too much credit on what we could potentially tease out of him. uh, About the science he's learned through writing this book. And also the simple question, why write a whiskey science textbook? Here is his contact info through UC Davis. Fantastic. Oh, wow. And then he closes, cheers, Philippe. Philippe van der Let me bring you back, Joshua.
0: Yeah. Okay. Sorry.
1: Two. There's there's a couple of questions in here. Number one, let's go back to Philippe being curious how customers are receiving mm. information mm-hmm. about the tariffs, and then we'll go on to what we could potentially do with with Professor Miller. So you're you've been in more American retail stores than me in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. What are you hearing rumblings? Are you hearing customers weighing in, are you hearing retailers talk about what they're hearing from their customers? Let me let me
0: use an example without mentioning names, oh. uh, so so as not to uh, incriminate the source uh-huh. or incriminate the subject that the source is referring to. So. I was. This sounds more
1: complicated than a five hundred page book on whiskey distillation. Well, maybe you should interview me, as in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing this podcast is clearly missing: more Joshua. <laughs> uh, so, I was, as you know, and we mentioned it in
0: in the previous podcast. I was going around the Northeast with Mike from Pindarin, mm-hmm. and. One of the things that, that people inevitably ask is, so when's the 25% tariffs going to hit these these Pandaren whiskeys? And I was pretty happy to say, for some reason or another, uh, I guess whoever developed these tariffs, and I'm not going to mention names, uh, apparently is not familiar with a country called Wales or the fact that... <laughs> They are a whiskey-producing country because the 25% tariff does not apply to Welsh single malt whiskey. It's specifically for single malt Scotch whiskey and single malt Irish whiskey, but not single malt Welsh whiskey or single malt English whiskey, okay? And during this conversation, we get to deliver that good news, but here we are talking with a shop owner, and the shop owner says, well, I've got to tell you, Uh, such-and-such parent company of many distilleries delivered the news to us that the tariffs are going into effect immediately as of November 1. That, That was the information they were given. Meanwhile, this parent company who imports all of their own stuff, according to the shop owner, is sitting on probably... Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cases that made it into the U.S., completely unscathed by tariffs. And they viewed it as uh, this company trying to just take advantage of those tariffs and making a bit more money. And the shop owner said, we are selling what we have and we're putting a hold on purchasing any and all whiskey from them. Said, we get the tariffs. We understand that they are coming. Hmm. But the tariffs should be applied to whiskey that arrived after October 18, I think the date was. Mm -hmm. Or or whatever the date was. It was 18, you got it right? Yeah, it was the 18th. So the good news is shop owners understand that it's coming. The bad news is for those that are trying to jack up their prices... Uh, To these shop owners early, well, they're not being received so well. So you've got this shop owner that says, I'm just not going to buy products from them because they're trying to screw me over. Wow. And, but then you've got other shops that, that are just dealing with it because there are some core products that you, you can, you can't afford to not have on your shelf. Sure. And they're saying, you know what? Sorry, guys, the price is going up because their supplier says the price is going up. So in in short, to summarize the conversations that we're having, mm-hmm. visiting these various shops is is more shop specific rather than consumer specific. Yeah, they, they know it's coming. Some are pissed off. Some are boycotting brands. Some are just saying, "Hey, it is what it is. What are you gonna do?" Uh, it's but without a doubt, it's really going to affect overall sales. There's no doubt about it. I think people are going to go to more entry-level SKUs or they're going to switch to blends
1: or to world whiskies, or to bourbon. Yeah, I, I think if you're someone like Compass Box, you're sitting in a great, great spot right now because you've got all the, the reputation of single malt quality, but you're releasing blended malts and blended products. And their prices are not going to go north. They're going to remain competitive on shelves and, and even get slightly more competitive on shelves.
0: Which is, which is great for them, right? I think, you know, as, as upsetting as all of this tariff business is, I've always thought that Compass Box deserves more attention. And, and this is going to give them a bit more attention. So good for them, good for John Glazer.
1: Um, well and look what it's gonna do yeah. for Amrut, for Paul John, for Penderin, for yeah, English exactly. Whiskey Company. Exactly. You know? For Milk those and honey out of Israel. Right? Yeah. For for those products that consumers think, well, that's a little bit more than single malt should be, or that's a little more than I spend on single malt. Well, single malt's now bypassing it in price, mm. and these world single malts are just sitting there ready to pick up consumers.
0: Yeah. So so
1: it'll be interesting. And I think Philippe hits the nail on the head here where it'll be interesting to see how consumers start working around the edge of these tariffs Mm -hmm. and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I, I used to buy all my single malts from Scotland. Now I'll see what else I can tease in around the edges here. And will they be savvy to it? You know, consumers, in my experience, are smart and go in search of good pricing and, and kind of where the bargains can be found and I think all of those world whiskies who have been honing their craft while single malt scotch has remained King will now have a moment to really shine in consumers eyes mm. so, mm-hmm. yeah. so we'll, we'll see there. Um, and then as as for um, professor what was his name Miller Professor Miller mm-hmm. um, so as to as to Professor Miller, we will we will definitely reach out i have to take a look at the the book ourselves see if there's anything we can ask him of of interest um, maybe even um solicit some questions from our our own listeners who are of a a scientific bent and and see what they might want to uh, be asked that that could be fascinating as well yeah well i tell you i've I've
0: been wanting to get out to California because you know typically you don't allow me to. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't visit see that, that changing that anytime soon. Yeah, uh, but it'll be nice to to visit Professor Miller at, at UC Davis. And there's actually uh, a pair of people from UC Irvine, and I'm not going to release who they are. That I'm desperate to interview over uh, a couple of drams. You and I, Jason, will talk about that off the air. But maybe we could do a
1: one-two punch. All right, try, try to limit the physical violence with our with our guests, please, Joshua. No, oh, I'm gonna punch them <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> Thank you for signing up. Um, okay, so this this goes live just before Thanksgiving. You and I will be returning from uh, a trip to in Vermont, Mm -hmm. the day this has dropped. And then I will have the pleasure of hosting you and your family with me and my family the following week for Thanksgiving. I can't believe you dropped the bomb. I I, I figured I could say it and you could even be in Vermont or or whatever you wanted to do it. But yeah, I I like the fact we dropped Vermont the last time. So and, yeah. and so we're very much looking forward to having you and your family down with us for Thanksgiving. Can't and wait. then we'll have a, a fresh episode the very beginning of December for the, the good listeners to enjoy as we get ever closer and farther into the festive season.
0: One last thing that I need to mention that really should have been part of the news. Short and focused. And, yeah, it's going to be short and focused. Last year... Listeners and Single Cast Nation members will remember that we did a very special Giving Tuesday. It's not an event, but what did we do? It was a Giving Tuesday day. It was a Giving Tuesday day. So what we did is we, we offered up the opportunity for people to win bottles by donating to the charity of their choice. And submitting a receipt to us so that 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 we see it, in an effort to just get charitable dollars out there. We we don't care what the charity is. If you have a charity that is near and dear to your heart, whether it's PETA or if it's homeless children or uh, you know what what have you, Ch- American children's Cancer hospitals Society, or children's
1: hospitals.
0: Of it. Last year we raised
1: over. Geez, I don't even remember how many. I want to say uh, we hit I want to say we hit 20,000 on the nose cuz I so remember what, us rounding it up with with one small little thing at the end. So that's what I was going to say. Across X number of charitable
0: organizations, we the single cast nation members raised just about $18,000 and we Pitched in whatever the remainder was to get it to an even twenty thousand dollars in charitable organizations. So you and I, Jason, actually bottled something very special for Giving Tuesday. Mm-hmm. We did uh, to to offer as uh, as an ante, as it were. So keep an eye out on for Single Cast Nation members. Keep an eye out on your email. Keep an eye out on their Facebook. Page, and if you're not yet a Single Cast Nation member, uh, you can always go to singlecastnation.com, sign up for a free account. You'll get our emails. You can join our private Facebook group to be a part of this Giving Tuesday. If you give annually anyway, why not share that information with us and earn the opportunity to get a bottling that isn't available in any other instance?
1: Yeah, you'll definitely want to follow the Facebook group because we definitely do have some lovely little surprises up our sleeves for this year.
0: Yep, yep. indeed we do.
1: Okay, Joshy so. Josh. and if By my reckoning, giving Tuesday will be something like December 2nd or 3rd. Because Thanksgiving itself is November 28th. Wow, it's really late this year. Yes, it is. All right, so there you go. Keep that in mind, people's. Okay, time to clang our teacups and get the heck out of here. All right. Cool. Well, thanks again to Stuart. Thanks again to the listeners. Thanks again to Jess and, and the people that put on Glasgow's Whiskey Festival. Thanks to Good Spirits Company for jumping into the breach with us. And thank you to you, Joshua, for just being you. Oh, and thank you for you. And thanks to
0: Philippe Van Avong. Philippe Van Avong. Philippe Fan of Anna Vong Fong Fong Fan of Cheers Cheers
1: I tell those Scots they love a good reverse park. They love it. They love reversing into a small space.
0: That's what she said.
1: Yeah, there's an anal joke there somewhere. <laughs> I almost um, got into
0: a car accident last night.
1: Checks out. I've seen you driving.
0: It had nothing to do with me. I was I was merging into the highway and
2: Didn't we
0: were, we were losing a lane,
1: uh-huh. and
0: I had I had all the room to move over so long as the people in front of me kept moving. The car in front of me was fine. It was the car in front of the car in front of me who just decided, I'm going to slam on my brakes.
1: Was that car a Toyota? You know what it was? I think it was
0: a Saturn. You, Do you don't remember their
1: advertising campaign? No, I don't. Oh,
0: shit, there was a joke that I missed.
1: The car in front of the car in front is a Toyota. That was their advertising campaign. I only remember you want it. You got it. Toyota. Oh, I was thinking Burger King. Toyota, have it your way. <laughs> Toyota, I'm loving it. <laughs> <Ba-da-ba-ba-ba>,
2: Toyota. <laughs>
1: that, that's the one. Yeah, remember?
2: That? Yeah, I do remember that.